Another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. Hi, folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Dictated is almost always the case during my 50 mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Uh, today is Monday, June the 15th, 2009, as I check my PDA, and yes, it is June 15th, 2009. I know it's Monday because I'm getting up and going to the office for the first time in a couple days, and uh, it is actually gorgeous out right now, folks. It's 82 degrees with some clouds and some wind, but I've been told by the weather guesser on the radio not to get attached to that because it'll be up near 100 soon. So the dog days of summer in Texas are upon us. And uh, I don't know if you really care, but when friends talk, they talk about the weather, and I consider all of my listeners my friends. That's why I mention it probably two or three times a week, just so you can know where I'm at, and then you think about where you're at, and that helps form a connection. But today's show is going to be a little different than anything we've ever done before, I think. Not really different, but I guess different subject. I know we've not talked about this before, at least not put together this way. I decided to go out and look globally if I could find a number of threats that people really aren't talking about. Uh, there may be bigger threats than all the crap they are talking about. You know, all the terrorists in the world are lining up to jihad against the United States right now and kill us, but yet they don't seem to really turn up very often. North Korea is going to nuke us all except that we could nuke the entire country of North Korea with one bomb. And then the Iranians are going to, well, they really can't get their shit straight and handle their own people when they protest an election. So then the next thing is Hugo Chavez is really kind of not really that big a threat because we could blow his ass out of the water in about 15 seconds. And, and then, okay, so you see what I mean. All the stuff that they churn through our news media all the time, um, and I'm not saying those things aren't threats at all, I'm just saying they're, they're not the threats that they're made out to be the end of the world threats that the sheeple are led to believe is gonna gonna you know take us out. And I have a comment on sheep in a second as soon as I get done with the first part of my house cleaning. Before we go into the subject, let's talk about house cleaning for a second. Just uh, get the stuff out of the way at the beginning. That's what we try to do here. And uh, one is, I have started a new project. I mentioned this on Friday. I know Friday is my least listened to show, though, but I got a tremendous response already. But I'm going to mention it again today and probably tomorrow before I finalize everything and say, okay, whoever wants to participate has put their hand up, and now let's uh, let's get on with it. This is going to be phase one of a request for participation. There is going to be a phase two, where and that should come a long way before phase one is actually done, where I'm going to need people that can go out and create subject matter for this project. But right now what I need are web developers, web programmers, Programmers, graphic designers, and I want to be very clear that one person won't be doing everything, that I'm trying to put together a team here that can all look at things together and help each other out and put this project together. The project is called, again, the 10% Project. I'm not going to say much more about it right now other than it's not directly about survival, but it's all about survival. Uh, it has to do with my beef against ornamental plantings 
and some of the things I've said before should pretty much clue you in onto the meat and bones of this thing anyway, if you want to guess, but I like building up a little bit of suspense. And uh, it's not political in nature. In fact, uh, I put together the forward-looking vision for it uh, this weekend, and I have specifically decided that if any politician or bureaucrat claims any association with it, that whatever organization is there will slander his name for being a lying, thieving bastard, because we do not have political affiliations with this program. Politicians on both sides of the aisle ruin everything that they touch. If they want to participate, they can do it as Joe Homeowner, which uh, is a hell of a lot better than Joe Politician. So again, if you're interested in participating in this project and helping to build the platform that is going to run it or the graphics that are going to be seen on it, send me an email, jack at the survivalpodcast.com and let me know. I want to be really clear here, though, because I got some emails over the weekend that I don't think people got it. This is a volunteer thing. Okay, I'm not looking for contractors. I don't need your resume. I'm not going to pay you. I'm not, I'm not interested in what your contract or market rates are. All right, this is a, uh, this is a community action thing. I have in-house talent and a company that I own that could build this thing probably a lot quicker if I just did it. But this project is going to be 100% grassroots community involvement from the beginning. We're going to do it. The only thing that we're going to have bills for is the hosting services and the domain registration, and I'll take care of that. Everything else is going to be volunteer, including the development of it. Um, I think there's a lot of people out there that want to be involved in this, so I don't think that's going to be a problem. Okay, the next thing is make sure you take a look at our sponsors on our website. They're in the right-hand margin. Those guys support the show. Sponsor of the day mentioned on the air, Tactical Response Gear, James Jaeger's operation. Good guys. Check them out. Check out his site. Check out some of his training programs as well. Probably some of the best stuff that's available anywhere in the world. If you looked at James's resume, uh, he's been trained and trained people all around the world in all types of situations, from law enforcement to private contractors uh, for international work, things like that. Um, last, if you think you get more than 25 cents in value per episode, consider joining the Members Support Brigade and get exclusive content only available to members. Uh, price is $5 a month to support the show, or $50 a year, which gives you a discount, or you can pay quarterly or semi-annually. If you want to pay by check or money order, go to the site, click on the banner for Member Support Brigade, and when you go to join, you'll see a link for how to pay by cash or check, and there's a form you can fill out and mail in, and we've been turning around those pretty quick, usually within a day of receipt. We email you back and tell you, here's your login information. All right, so that knocks out house cleaning. Let's get into uh, to the uh, topic of the day, so to speak. But I wanted to make one more comment. I had somebody send me an email or on the forum or something and basically said that when I call people the sheep, I'm alienating them against survivalists because we're the only ones that are smart enough to know what to do, and they're dumb, stupid sheep, and that's not a real good way to win hearts and influence people. What? Come on, dude. I didn't even email this back because I was about three tequilas uh, into a weekend, I think, when I got this and decided that I wasn't going to be nice. But, jeez, first of all, I've never said that anybody was a sheep because they weren't a survivalist or even into self-sufficiency. I call people sheep that are stupid because they believe everything the media says. And if you believe that, you're a sheep. And the only way you're going to get a sheep to stop being a sheep is prove to them they're a sheep. Let the wolf nip the ankle a little bit and maybe they'll wake up. And if 
that offends anybody tough. So I had to throw that in there just because it was bugging me. I think it's been bugging me for a couple weeks. I don't really remember when I got that, but something I said on the intro made me remember it. So let's go ahead and get into what are the threats. And I've got nine threats that I think that are out there that no one's really talking about. You might hear little rumblings of it here and there. You might see somebody like Seeking Alpha or alternative media sources uh, that are out there do a piece on it here and there. But even among the survivalist community, it's not the stuff that people are really talking about. Like I was saying in the beginning, everybody's worried about, oh, the terrorists, oh, oh, oh it's Hugo Chavez, oh, it's Kim Jong-il's going to nuke us, oh, oh right? And, and it's just on and on and on. And it's like the same ten things we hear about over and over and over again. And then we, when you really analyze them, you go, yeah, it's not something, that's not romper room stuff, but is there anything that's a bigger threat to us long term here in America, people in Europe, people all around the world, but specifically today I'm coming at this from what's the threat to America as a whole. And the first one that I don't think anybody's really talking about, I mean, you hear little rumblings of it, but it's all its all financial people talking about the effect of the stock market, and nobody's talking about the, the large-scale impact of what this will mean if it's successfully pulled off, and why it's different than what, the let's say, the Japanese and the Korean have done with their entries into the auto market. And the threat itself is that China is trying to take over the auto market globally. That's their goal. Uh, China set a goal earlier this year. They want to have a big 10. You know, we had the big three. GM, bankrupt. Chrysler, bankrupt, sold to Fiat. And Ford, holding their own. God bless them for it. Yeah, China wants to take over the auto industry, and people are like, yeah, yawn, how's that a threat to us survival-wise? Well, here's some differences. Number one, Toyota, Kia, you know... Lexus, all these these foreign cars, these Japanese and Korean-made foreign cars, have at least part or sometimes all of their assembly done in the United States. Um, these foreign car companies up till now, what they've done is they've they figured out that the American auto worker is is a good worker, and he'll work hard and he'll work his ass off, and he believes in what he's doing. And this crap that Americans can't build quality cars is complete and total bullshit. That yeah, we can, but it's our union and our bureaucracy over that. Union that has caused a lot of the quality control issues in American manufacturing. And it's also the way that an American car company owned by Americans is treated differently by the American government than a foreign car company uh, that is owned by foreigners. And that's true. I mean, even those Toyotas manufacturing in the United States, they don't have to do all the same things that GM does when they manufacture in the United States because they are a foreign-owned entity. So, seeing this, a lot of foreign manufacturers have moved, again, part of their manufacturing facilities here in America. So, Toyota actually hasn't really cost American jobs. They've built American jobs. And they've done it in places like Tennessee. And you can go to these, some of these towns in Tennessee that really weren't much before Toyota came there. And now they've built, like, basically many, many Detroits when Detroit was a place to be proud to live in. 
And this has happened all over. They're building, you know, there's plants in Louisiana. There's plants in Texas that are foreign owned and at least creating foreign jobs. Now, I'm not overjoyed about it, but at least there is a job for an American at the end of the day there. Well, the Chinese don't really have any plans to do that. See, when you have over a billion people, you kind of need stuff for those guys to do. So if China has an impact on the auto industry when they ramp up, and they are ramping up, uh, on a level that is commensurate with what Toyota did, it's going to have a totally different effect. Because you won't see Beijing opening auto plants in Kentucky. They're going to keep the jobs for their people in their nation. They have a lot of people to put behind the wheel before they even worry about exports. But they're going to start exporting because they want to bring in that export money because they've built an economy around that too. And here's the big threat that nobody gets. It's not just the damage to the United States economy. It's not just removing one more blue-collar job that actually paid a decent wage. What it really is, it's the dismantling of America's manufacturing capability domestically. See, it, it, it baffles me how we can come out with a trillion dollars for a stimulus bill that's supposed to uh, create green energy, all right, and uh, we're going to have all these solar panels and windmills, but we only dedicate about 2% of the trillion dollars to actually do that stuff, and then we, you know, we just kind of put it all in these little grants and these little, you know, operational things all over the U.S., and we worry about bullshit like carbon capture, when if we were really in the threat that they say we are from global warming, and it was like, you know, the politicians try to make it something akin to World War II. You know what we did in World War II? We told the auto manufacturers, hey, you know what, you're building guns, you're building aircraft motors, you're building anything we need. We're going to pay you for it, but you're going to build it. And they said, we like money. We'll build it. Tell us how to tool for it. We'll build whatever you want. Maybe we could have stimulated Chrysler and GM and Ford by buying a couple thousand windmills off them each for you know millions and millions of dollars and have them create a new manufacturing facility and capability. See, what people don't realize about the auto industry here in America is not just cars that they build. It's a workforce with engineering, assembly, manufacturing, and logistical capabilities that has in the past been turned to build whatever we needed. We're in danger of losing what's left of that, and uh, China's a big threat for that. The next threat that nobody really talks about, other than you hear a little bit about it goes away, a little bit about it goes away, is Europe's immigration problem. Europe has... Uh, Based on what started out as really a shortage of labor, uh, they lost a lot of their skill sets, carpenters, people that could actually do work, as they moved just like the United States into a more lackadaisical service-based industry. And frankly, there's a lot of people in Europe that work their ass off, but there's a lot of people in Europe that are ahead of the American curve of sitting on your butt and holding a desk down uh, for a living and being entitled to a job because they're a citizen. So that labor shortage had them bring in tons of immigrants. Well, is that immigrant started a lot of radical Islamic people moved into the European communities. Now, look, this is not against Muslims. Muslims are good people. Uh, the vast majority are great people. If you go to places like Malaysia, they have a higher percentage of Muslims than any other place in the world, and you don't see a whole lot of jihad stuff going on in Malaysia. All right, But what you're seeing is a lot of these people that are coming into Europe either are coming out of the really hardcore uh, governments that actually teach hatred in their school systems, or they're coming out of those semi-moderate Muslim nations that are basically saying, hey, dude, we, uh, we're putting you on a fast track to get you out of here. You're too extreme for us. 
And, and these people are going in and forming these communities, and then the Europeans are, I hate to say this, but European governments are stupid. They're giving all the social programs to these people, way more than we are in the United States. They're allowing them to create slums, and within their slums in certain nations, they're allowing them to govern themselves under Sharia law, circumventing their own European laws and constitutions. And this is, this is a recipe for disaster. Why do we care in America? Because we get a lot of our funding and financing out of Europe, and if the European nations start to go bust from civil unrest and civil problems, and they can't, you know, they can't wage war against themselves, you can only do so much with military might to put down an uprising that's on your own soil. Because you're going to damage and hurt and harm your own people, including yourself, when you do it. So it's a big threat. I, I'm not going to go deep into that one today because I have limited knowledge of the threat. But I know from what I've analyzed of it, it looks like it has some real potential to create massive waves throughout the world. Because so much of the world banking system is based in Europe, Europe and European currencies. The euro and the pound are the stabilizing force that have, you know, really, on some levels, kept the dollar from imploding. You can say it's the Chinese. We'll talk a lot about them today. Uh, but it's, it's the association of Europe, Great Britain, and the United States together that have held the three currencies from complete devaluation. So keep an eye on that one. Pay attention to what's going on over there. And when nobody talks about it, use Google. Google's your friend. Okay, is anybody out there that's listened to more than maybe just a handful of my show knows? Um, I'm a big uh, enemy of Monsanto. I despise Monsanto. I think they are some of the lowest of the low on the on the planet with the things that they're doing. And there's a lot that I have against genetically modified organisms. And you can make a case for or against those. I'm sure we can get a good scientist in here that would do an effective job of debating me on whether they're as bad as I say they are. But the one thing that they do that is indefensible, there's just no way to defend against this, is their enforcement of patents on seeds in third world nations. And not just on their own seeds that they've developed, okay, the Terminator genes and the, the you know, they're not actually even producing that, at least they say they're not now, because, oh, they've seen that maybe somebody's not ready for it yet. But, you know, like these insecticide-based corns and insecticide-based cotton seeds and uh, Roundup Ready canola and these other genetically modified products. It's one thing when they enforce those patents, but what they're actually doing is they're going and they're claiming ownership of historic uh, developed seed, seed that's been in government food banks for a long time, and a lot of governments are allowing patent enforcement on this uh, simply based on whoever patents the seed first. So people take this seed that's being developed, and, and they go ahead and they, they take it, and they take it to a patent office. They file a patent against it, and they say, if you want to grow the seed, you have to have a license to grow it. It doesn't matter that it's been, you know, there's stories about certain seed varieties that have been g- grown in Iraq for centuries. They were developed in Iraq. Now, now Monsanto says they have patents on them. There's a big stink in India about this. I'll post a link to it. I'm going to post a ton of links to backup sources on all this stuff in today's show notes. You'll want to check them out. But I'll give you a great one on what's going on in India right now, where the farmers in India have collectively gotten together with their Department of Agriculture, and they've decided climate change is a real threat. Now, we could debate the merits of why the climate is changing, but what they're saying is, look, we got to accept the fact that it could get a lot hotter, and it could get a lot cooler. So what we need to do is we need to develop strains of our seed that is resistant to hotter temperatures and cooler temperatures. And they've started to do that, and they've done it with selective breeding, 
with biotechnology that does not involve splicing genes together. They're taking action. They're doing a good thing. Monsanto is supporting this research with money and then using that support and their involvement and they're buying out of government officials to try to place patents on the seeds that are being developed by India's farmers and Department of Agriculture. I don't know what they actually call it there, but it's their equivalent of Department of Agriculture. Now, why is this a threat to us? Because there's over a billion people in India, and India has nuclear weapons, and they're surrounded by people that don't really like them, like Pakistan, who also has nuclear weapons. And there's a point at which India might just snap the hell out and decide, you know what, we're going to feed our 1.3 billion people. We're not going to worry about what you guys want over there. And if you bother us about it, maybe we'll pop a couple of you. Right, we look at India as a very peaceful, and while a socialist, a democratically elected socialist nation, and they are, but when you take away people's food, things get nasty and things get ugly. And this is way different than the influence that Monsanto has in the United States. In the United States, Monsanto has employed people that have been selling seed to the same farm families for, for generations. They do whatever they can to keep subsidies in place so that our farmers stay semi-comfortable, at least more than a little bit comfortable, I would say. I'm not saying farmers are getting rich or anything, folks, but large farm operations seem to always get what they need to stay around, and they always seem to be okay, right? And they, they say they're poor, but they drive around on half-million-dollar pieces of equipment that somehow they find funding to purchase. And I'm telling you that these people like Monsanto have done things in our government to make sure that that happens. They've made sure that these people stick to monoculture. And the people aren't bad people. They're doing what they've always done. They think that they're doing the right things. And in some instances, even the large-scale monoculture farm, God bless them for being there because they're feeding people. And we lose sight of that when we get too hopped up on you know the organic stuff and everything else. But that farmer, when he goes to town, doesn't see people wasting away and dying in the streets of starvation. That Indian farmer does. There's the powder keg there. Now, how will it come together and blow up? We don't know. But when you start looking at water shortages, food shortages, commodity shortages, devaluing of world currencies, you put it all together, it's a place to keep your eye on. So, you know, again, I'm just trying to bring to your attention things today that people maybe should be talking about, things that maybe people should be looking at that they're really not. You won't find a lot of this stuff under Google News. You'll have to look in the blogs. You'll have to look through archives. You'll have to go back, uh, find little pieces of it here and there. But it's all out there, and it's all real. Here's one that made its little blip on the radar and then seemed to go away. And I don't think people really understand the ramifications here. They don't really, they're not taking it in for what it is. Earlier this year, both the Russians and the Chinese went on a gold buying spree. They started buying up large amounts of gold. Now, since gold has begun to drop a little bit and a lot of the uh, commodities like food and iron and copper and everything have begun to go up, they've slowed down on their gold buying, but they're still buying it. So the financial analysis here is, okay, well, gold was getting upward pressure, now not so much, right? And 
and uh, maybe it's not quite as golden an investment as it was, pun intended, a few days ago, but still worth buying. Globally, the threat that, okay, the Chinese and the Russians could move to a different currency or move to a gold-backed currency, move away from using the dollar as their standard uh, basis for their currency gets talked about. Nobody really gets it, though. Let me explain this to you in a way that you'll understand. If you haven't listened to the show I did last week called The Shell Game, and it explains how Federal Reserve and Fractional Reserve banking systems work, go listen to it, because it may help you understand this, even though I've been told it was a little bit confusing. It was confusing because it doesn't make sense, but it is reality. Anyway... Right now, what people do not understand is that when the Chinese go out and they loan us money as our biggest creditor and they put their money into T-bills, they're using those T-bills to produce their own currency, and they've got their currency absolutely pegged to the dollar. If you go look on Yahoo Finance and you compare currencies, and you see how, let's say, the dollar compares to the euro or the pound or the real or the dinar or any of the world currencies, you'll see all types of fluctuations between the currencies. If you look at how we compare it to the Chinese currency, you'll see almost a straight line over five years. It goes down a little bit, up a little bit, but really it's very, very flat. And that's because they do it on purpose to maintain the trade imbalance between the United States and China. They want their currency weak against the dollar. But... What they do when they loan us all this money and put their their, their quran into T-bills is they then take those holdings and they use them as an excuse to produce more of their own money so they can buy more. China is playing its own shell game. And the more they put into us, the more shells they create. And they can take those shells and buy things like companies, which we'll talk about in a minute, but they can also buy gold. And they don't have to dump the T-bills to buy the gold. They use the T-bill as a leveraged asset to buy the gold with. And eventually they start to slowly divest themselves of these T-bills. And they're sitting on so much gold, they don't care. Because when they destroy the dollar as the world's currency, the value of their gold will go up. And it will offset their losses. And it will free them from the slavery they have to the United States. When you owe somebody money, you are technically their slave. When you owe them more money than they can afford to lose and they have no recourse to get it back, from you other than to keep loaning you more they become your slave. That's where China is right now. They have a plan to get out of this and by the time I get done today you'll see how far that plan really goes. But when you start to see major nations buying up gold the European Union did it too. And the Brits did a little bit too. I, I keep telling people this when they're saying, oh, this is the big one. The dollar is going to go to zero and the world is going to leave us and then we're going to... They can't afford to right now. When you start seeing the gold buying going up of all these nations and the commodity buys, the resource buys, that's where they're trying to set themselves up so that once the recovery comes, then they can begin a separation that won't kill them because they're tired of betting on the greenback that's no longer the greenback. And they want out. They, they're, it's absolutely right when somebody tells you they want out. They can't afford to. Buying up commodities is the first step in getting there. The next one is exactly on that note, and that is China starting to buy up natural resources all over the world. They're buying companies. They're buying production facilities. Basically, they have tons of money because we keep buying their crap. right? We buy all their garbage, and then they put their money into our T-bills, and they loan it to us, and our, our, our nation pumps it back into our economy. And what do we do? We buy more Chinese crap with it. 
So they've got a good thing going here, but they know that it's reaching the end of its life cycle. And I don't mean tomorrow, but I mean we ain't got 20 years left to run this economy this way, folks. We can't do it for another 20 years. We may not be able to pull it off for 10. But we've got one more inflationary bubble, and they mean to make the best of it. So what they're doing is they're buying up all kinds of things. Remember I said that they wanted to uh, have a big tenant auto industry? Well, they own Hummer now. What do you think the odds are that they'll move a lot of the production or all of the production of the Hummer to China? I got a, I got a sneaking suspicion that the next thing that's going to happen is that China's going to buy what's left of Chrysler. They, this whole deal to sell them to, uh, who is it, Renault? That they're selling to some Italian or European car company that you look at it and go, how the hell could these people afford Chrysler? Well, they can't now dime on the dollar. And you go, well, what are they going to do? Are they going to really invest in the company and try to bring it back to its glory and, and all that good stuff? Or are they just seeing this as, you know what, the U.S. government can never sell to the people selling Chrysler? in a bankruptcy to the Chinese. But once it's a done deal and we own it, then we're a foreign entity. We can sell it to whoever the hell we want to. Beijing buying Chrysler, I don't think it's out of the out of the woods. But the bigger thing is you gotta look at what they're buying they're buying contracts to purchase up food and commodities from nations all over the world. And they're buying the actual production facilities and the companies that manage them. They're buying them in Africa. They're buying them in South America. They're even buying mining companies right here in the United States of America. They're using our own money to do it. Nobody sees it. No one gets it. And then people look back and go, we heard all this about Japan. We heard all, Japan ended up being, you know, okay, well, Japan was an ally from the beginning. Japan is a very non-aggressive country in its current form. They even have a constitution uh, that, that, that says that their military can't be used for aggression. Japan only has roughly a few less people in the United States. They're not talking about billions. Japan has limited national natural resources on its own soil. Uh, Japan is an island, and Japan has been beaten into submission by the United States in the past and has a relationship that, I hate to say it, is based on that beating. And to this day, it still is. And Japan's infrastructure and government was largely set up by the United States in its current form. Okay. China has well over a billion people. China has massive natural resources. They can make plenty of electricity in China with coal, and they're going to do it damn Kyoto. They don't care. Not worried about Kyoto. Oh, yeah, we want Kyoto. They don't give a shit about that because it ain't going to really affect them because they have a per capita ability to grow based on what we're doing here that's still extreme. China is a big nation. They have a lot of land area. They have a lot of ways to support themselves. China is tightly aligned with the Soviet Union in many ways still to this day. China has leverage points against the United States all over the place. China has a very large arsenal of nuclear weapons. I would say the Chinese military is a hell of a lot better equipped and a hell of a lot more lethal and dangerous than the Russian military. So China is a totally different animal when it rears its head with its massive population, massive natural resources, and starts to exercise leverage on the rest of the world. Well, that's what's happening right now. It's, it's a rising nation. And if you look at what some of the wealthiest people in the world are doing, they're starting to move some of their assets and some of their, uh, some of their possessions into China. Um, very, very wealthy people are purchasing property in China. 
They're being allowed to do so at this point. The wealth of the world is beginning a slow migration to China. And I know that sounds like, okay, did Jack and Alex Jones hook up and drink some beers this weekend? No, no, no. My friends, if you check into this, you'll find out that uh, everything I'm telling you here is dead on today. And besides, Alex isn't wrong all the time, just uh, about 5% in my book when he goes, out there. So every time I bash on Alex, I try to give him a little bit of props for for some of the really cool stuff he actually does and some of the things that are really out there that he's made people, and I say really out there, I don't mean it sarcastically, that are that really are out there that he's made people aware of. So side note to uh, back up Alex there a little bit. The other thing that we really need to look at, and this is something I've told you about before, but no one's talking about it at all, yeah, I've never seen this in major news media. The depletion of the fossil aquifers of the world. For those that maybe haven't heard these shows I've done on this, a fossil aquifer is basically an underground lake, an underground sea of water. Water that's been there for millions and millions and millions of years. And unlike the shallow aquifers that, you know, shallow aquifer you can pump it dry. And if you stop pumping and you let and we get some really good rain for a while, eventually that aquifer will refill. Fossil aquifers are so deep, it's so large, that they don't refill. There's no real good way for the water to get back down there anymore. And if it can get back down there, it might refill, but for all intents and purposes, it's barren forever because generations and generations of humans will be gone before that thing ever fills back up. So once it's dry, for you know, for a thousand years, a thousand years from now, it'll still be basically dry. Well, these aquifers, like uh, the Saudi aquifer, and the Saudi aquifer is actually in China. And then there's the Agala aquifer here in the United States, around the Texas Panhandle, up into the Midwest. And there's these fossil aquifers all over the world that nations are now beginning to pump water out of, and they're depleting at an alarming rate. And what they're using that water for isn't for your sink or watering your Bermuda grass. They're using it to irrigate crops. And as those aquifers get depleted, or even at the point where people start to realize we can't just pump them unabandoned and they start limiting what comes out of them, it can't help, but it can't do anything other than damage the production of agriculture throughout the world. And we already are on a dangerous precipice to exceed capacity with demand on grains. In fact, for six of the last nine years, world demand for grain has been uh, has not been met. We've exceeded capacity by demand for six of nine years. That means people went hungry in parts of the world because there wasn't food. Not because they were poor, not because the food that couldn't get to them, but their, their share of the available market ran out. That's a harsh reality, and it can happen everywhere. And all it takes is a 4 to 5% shortfall globally, and everybody's in trouble. Because prices go through the roof and people start going to war over food. I've said this before. If you go to war for oil, you'll go to war for food faster. Uh, the thing is, up till now, we haven't really had to worry about food here in America. But we're rapidly reaching a point where we may have to. So keep an eye on that, too. Pay attention for news about what's going on with the world's aquifers. Don't worry about the polar bears in the North Pole. Worry about the very thing that allows us to grow our food and to give water to our livestock. 
because that's being depleted. That's real, and it can be measured. And for all intents and purposes, it can be re- measured with basically a big, giant ruler because you can see where the level was today and where the level is tomorrow. You can see the difference, and with a little bit of math, you can calculate the end for these sources of fresh water that we're depleting at an alarming rate. Again, this is a threat that you're not really being told about, and it's a hell of a lot more real than the sensational bullshit that Fox News tells you about. Next one, um, back into China for a little bit. China may soon own Africa. And I literally mean that. A lot of these resources that they're buying, um, these commodities that they're buying, these companies that they're buying are in Africa. Africa's cheap right now. It's on sale. And China has flush with cash that they've created via their own fiat currency based on using a backing of our fiat currency. And they're going in and they're buying the hell out of African nations from a standpoint of buying up their resources, buying up their influence. And they're actually waging war with the United States because we've been playing that game for a long time. But China has a different design in mind for Africa, in my opinion. And this is pure opinion you're about to get, but it's an opinion that I feel strongly uh, is really right. And I, I would you know, challenge people to look into this and see what supporting evidence you can find for it, or what you can find to say, Jack, you're wrong. But my belief is that China doesn't want to do what America's historically done in Africa, which is basically feed some people and claim to be doing good and suck out copper and suck out nickel and suck out diamonds and suck out oil. China actually, I think, wants to turn Africa into China before China modernized. When China first started to kind of gear things up, what they what they needed was, or what they were doing was, they were using their large labor force, putting it to work, making cheaply manufactured goods, and then they empowered nations like Great Britain and the United States to grow by fueling their economy with cheap goods. China understands this because they were the they were the spoke in the wheel that made it happen. China now wants to be the United States. That's China. China's goal. And you can look at everything they're doing. They're, they're gearing up transportation, energy, coal, or everything they're doing. Looks just like the United States in the 50s as we geared up for that great, huge, long run of becoming the most dominant force in the world. They're doing the same thing. Now, one of the things that we needed to get there were things like Japan, Hong Kong, and China making inexpensive materials for us and sending them to us to fuel our economy. So China looks around and goes, well, where can we do this? We need a, we need a place with lots of natural resources that's large that we can easily buy our way into and that we can control and manipulate. We need a place that's a lot like we were 100 years ago that hasn't been fully exploited yet. And the only place like that left in the world is Africa. So for China to become the United States, they needed China. Now, they'll probably think about what they're doing and try to shepherd things a little bit better, control things a little bit better, so they don't end up bent over a barrel the way we are by them. But they have a playbook. They've seen it all play out. They know how to make that happen. And they're also thinking, well, for the next 70 years, this can work out pretty freaking well. So that's what I think China's doing with Africa. And it will actually be easier to do than it was for us to utilize, let's say, China, again, China, Taiwan, Japan, maybe the Philippines will throw in there, because they have a lot more nations to work with. So they have a lot more places they can divide things up and a lot more avenues in and out. And uh, they're going to have to fight the United States. And the thing is, they can come into Africa and look a hell of a lot more benevolent than we have because we've spent the last 50 years treating Africa like a cesspool 
and we have a lot of sentiment against us there. And the Chinese can come in and they can they can quash some of these rebellions, especially some of these religious-inspired rebellions. And they can put some of these nations back on track. They have the military might to make it happen, and it's going to be real hard for the United States or the U.N. or anybody to say, don't do that. Right, because the Chinese are going to be able to go in and say, "Hey, there's genocide here. We're going to go. We're going to go fix this. We have interests here, but look what's happening in the streets, and they will fix it as best any nation can." I'm not going to say they're going to do a better job than we could. I'm just saying they have the might to do it fairly well, at least enough to sell it to the global media. And that's, I think, a huge threat because when China becomes like the United States economically in the world and Africa becomes like China, where does that leave Europe and the United States? It leaves us as old, tired remnants of a world gone by. And then our biggest danger is, one, if that happens, we're marginalized. And all this, these resources that we consume, if we don't use them right now to create independence, which it doesn't look like we have any intention of actually doing, everything we're doing with alternative energy is lip service bullshit, we'll lose the opportunity to create that energy independence. And the other threat is that we won't go softly into the night, and our own government will go out and start waging war on a global scale. Those are two huge threats, and both of them are bad. I can't even say which one's worse in long-term reality, short of if we start launching the Luff balloons, okay, which is nuclear weapons for you guys not familiar with uh, 80s, 80s European music. Um, then, then all bets are off, and obviously the war is worse. But we're in a situation now where, again, if we just lose our purchasing power, our economic might, because of a shift in global economics, which I believe is being planned and executed right now, then we just languish and die like a fruit nobody picked off the vine. And nobody sends us stuff anymore. Because they don't need to. Because they've reversed the flow. And I know, again, you might be thinking, man, Jack's out there today. Folks, look up this Look up these, this information. Look at all the articles I'm going to post for you today. Examine what's going on. Be a student of history. Ask yourself how the United States shifted from being an agriculture-based society. There really wasn't that big a deal in the world other than you could come here and have a farm of your own. And that was the beacon that people came to America for, folks. They didn't come here for our Constitution. They didn't come here for our democracy. They came here for our wilderness that was being claimed. And they were told you could be a landowner. That's what brought them here. Even after World War One, because the globalists didn't get their way. It stayed that way. World War Two ended. And the United States rose up as an extreme superpower based on a hell of a lot more than the fact that we had a hydrogen bomb and a nuclear bomb at our disposal. You look at how we pulled it off. You look at how we used the, the, the resources of other nations. You look at how we created a fiat currency. You look at everything that we did. You look at us leaving the last vestiges of the gold standard. We were on the gold standard first. That's what made it possible. And you see China buying gold, buying resources, investing in Africa, constantly beefing up the capabilities of their military, building highways, building coal mines, building coal-powered electrical plants, initiating major government works around water, dams. They're doing everything we did. And they're, they're moving in Africa the way that we moved in the Far East when we made our move. And you tell me there's not synergies there. You tell me that at least there's not a probability that I'm right. 
And then the last one that I think that, that, that makes this all possible before I give you the coup de grace and the one that nobody sees as a threat. I mean, you've never heard anybody say this is a threat before. Before I give you that one, here's, here's the big one that, that sets the, the chessboard in motion. The global climate treaties, cap and trade, all of this crap. This belief that somehow your tailpipe is destroying the polar bear's habitat in the North Pole is being used to set up a global taxation system. And taxation systems do only one thing very well. They redistribute wealth from the wealthiest members of society to the poorest members of society. And here's what people do not understand in this country. Our welfare recipients in the United States are among the wealthiest people in the world. If you start a global taxation system, their wealth is getting redistributed too. And the wealth of the United States will be raped, pillaged, and robbed and spread back across the world. And that's, that's what Kyoto is about. That's what global taxation, that's what carbon taxes, that's what carbon credits, all this stuff is about money. It ain't got a damn thing to do with a seal or a polar bear or a wild tiger. We have raped this planet, yes. We have polluted this planet, yes. Do you notice that all the major initiatives around climate change, what about the toxins, the chemicals, the erosion of soil, the burning of forests, the cutting down of forests, the unabated clearing of land? What about all the shit that people are doing every day to destroy this planet that simply involves stop doing that? You're not allowed to do that anymore. We have to put controls on this. What about all the things that we actually can do something about right now that are completely ignored, yet we hear the drumbeat of the Al Gore freaking zombie, they're going to die of global warming. Why? Because you can't prove it. That's why it's a perfect scam. If the climate goes up, or the temperature goes up, it's global warming. If it goes down, it's global warming. If we start doing the things they want to do and it keeps going up, oh my God, we need to do more. If it starts to come down, we need to do more because look, it's working. It's the ultimate scam. It's the ultimate way to institute a global government because all a government is, all a government really is, is someone that oversees the finances of a body of people. That's it. Then once they oversee those finances, they can use them for good or evil to do whatever they want. And what I mean by that is you can look at the United States government and say, well, you know, they're more than just overseeing the finances. They're building roads. They have military. They have police forces. They have regulations. But the only thing that makes it all possible is the fact that they control the money. And they don't control the money because they create it. They control the money because they tax it. And that's how they funnel it wherever the hell they want it to go, through a taxation system. And as soon as you place a taxation system over a group of people, that group of people is effectively governed collectively. So as soon as you put in a system that allows the taxation on a global scale, you have a global government, the end, you're done. You don't need to meet at the Bilderberger Group. You don't need to put a foil hat on and go down in the bunker. You don't need any of that crap for it to happen. All you need is a single source collecting a tax on a global scale. And then you have global control of the world's economics, and therefore you have global government. And you will have an unelected global government, and your chief playing nations will have the most influence in it, and it ain't going to be us, folks. 
It's going to be the Chinese. To a lesser extent, it's going to be the Russians. And I don't know. I think somehow Britain is like the slippy, slippery, slick, like Slick Willie was during his presidency. Nothing sticks to them. They'll divest themselves of us. They'll end up coming out okay. And the United States, we're going to get the short end of the shaft. And it's because we've been stupid and we ain't been paying attention. And we've allowed it to happen to ourselves. That's how I see all this playing out. So what's the one thing that kicks in that causes a lot or all of these things to eventually happen? What's the most dangerous threat that we have? The most dangerous threat we have right now, I promise you, you've never heard it described as a threat, is global economic recovery. If we don't sort out the massive amount of currency we've pumped into the U.S. economy, before we actually have a recovery, if we don't figure out exactly how much of that fake money to pull back out of the economy before recovery occurs, it'll launch a shitstorm like you've never seen before of inflation in our nation. And it'll ripple throughout the rest of the world that hasn't separated themselves from us yet, and they will accelerate their plans to get separated because they'll have no other choice. I'm not worried about them coming in here and repossessing America, showing up at your house and going, get out, we're moving a Chinese family. And I think that that's, that's out there. But I do think that basically ringing us up like an old tired rag and leaving us alone and saying they don't need us anymore... Folks, I think that's a reality. And I think economic recovery at the wrong time or even the right time can be a catalyst for a lot of this. You say, how can, how can recovery cause this? Well, as soon as we actually have a recovery and every, all the money starts flowing again, then if everybody's still upset with us, and I can't see why they wouldn't be, then they get their opportunity to get away from us. Like I said, none of this stuff can happen fully right now. This is the part where you're, you're letting a pawn be sacrificed and you're moving your knight so that you're ready to defend your queen. And you're putting your queen into a position so you can set up a checkmate. And you're, 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 you're moving your rook just a little at a time so that your opponent doesn't realize what you're actually doing is covering half the board with your rook. With your rook completely covered at the same time. And you're waiting for the opportunity for everything to get set. And then when it's set perfectly, then you execute your final moves of the chess game. And that's what I see global governments, specifically Russia and China, doing right now. Russia's downsizing its military right now, folks. You say, well, that's the exact opposite of what China's doing. Yeah, because you know why? Russia no longer thinks the United States is really the threat we used to be. They realize we've been marginalized to a place in the world where it would be absolutely suicide for us to attack them. And they realize that if we didn't attack them during the Cold War, we sure as hell ain't going to do it now. And they're, they're taking their money that they used to use on their military, and they're realizing that's how they were bankrupted in the first place. And to pump all that money back into there is a mistake, and they're pumping their, their money into buying things like the Chinese are. The Russians are, I think, at this point, real willing to take a number two seat with the Chinese and to try to set up the relationship with Russia and China the way the U.K. and the U.S. have had in the past. And it'd be kind of their broker-dealer in the background. That's what I think is going on there. And I don't think it's so much out of malice. It's that these guys that lived behind this, this communist regime for so long and had it basically create failed states for both of them have looked over at what we've done, and they've said, you know what, that stuff works, except those idiots let it run away from them. Now, whether they can hold it in or not, I don't know. Whether they can do it better or not, I don't know. But I know that when you get that many people with as much resources as those two nations have together, and they decide, you know what, you you guys are right. We're going to play your game like you said we should have all along. That you have something on your hands that's really, you didn't think about it before you did it. 
And let me ask you this. For all the people that say they want China to be just as free as the United States, just as capitalist as the United States, just as open as the United States, do you really want 1.6, 1.7 billion people in a nation acting the way that the 300 million people in the United States have acted? And do you really want to compete with them on a global scale? Well, the reality is, folks, there's nothing to be done about this. There's no way to prevent it. It is going to occur. The only thing that we can do is be as prepared as possible and start to move our nation to as much independence as possible as soon as possible. And it doesn't start with phoning up your congressman because he has no interest in making you independent. He's on China's payroll, too. It starts with you changing your life to make yourself more independent. And I challenge you to consider doing that today. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.